Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this edition of the podcast is Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. Happy 2020. Happy 2020. It's the it's first one of 2020. Our first episode of 2020. And and also with us is Paul Kingsbury. Paul retired, Kingsbury. Yes. Happy Fleet New Year, Master guys. Chief. Happy New Year, Paul. So Paul been a while is, since Paul's uh, been on the show. It, it has been. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with Paul, he is a retired Fleet Master Chief who joined the Naval Institute staff about a year and a half ago and is uh, works both in outreach, particularly to the enlisted community, which is fantastic for us and has uh, netted some incredible results. Uh, and as a uh, an author of professional books, including the, the CPO Guide. so He's out there with the people. He is. Trying to get out there, yeah. and even more now living and working out of Hampton Roads yeah, to try he's to increase our, that reach of leading our Hampton Roads debt. Yeah, he's Naval Institute South. Yeah, yes. Naval Institute South. But yeah. it was a great year, 2020. A lot of... You know, 2020 is great. We're, we're eight eight days into 2020. It you was mean, a great, or year. yeah, or 2019. I guess I'm going to 2021. <laughs> there you now. go. I'm, a, I'm you, anticipating you're to a good, us from the future. Yes, <laughs> I am already predicting. I'm goal oriented, and we're going to make it even better. <laughs> so, awesome. but 2019 was great. A lot of great work. A lot of new titles added to the press. Um, a lot of outreach. A lot of you know work and accomplishments with sponsored student program. Several hundred new members of the Naval Institute through that. So that's been rewarding and fun to do. And then. As you mentioned, Bill, the you know the enlisted writing and proceedings is just taken off. Yeah, um, and it was an awesome year. Super excited! Next week is uh, Surface Navy Association's National Symposium over in Crystal City, Virginia, uh, 14, 15, 16, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday next week. We will all be there for some or all of that time. And uh, one come of the, by our booth. Come we by have our a booth. booth. There. We'll be doing some episodes of the podcast. I yeah. talked to John Cordell, our author of the year in 2018, uh, who uh, is going to be there, and he'll he'll stop by. We'll probably do an episode of the podcast with him. John has an article, his his latest article in uh, the January issue of Proceedings called "Fatigue: The Navy's Black Lung Disease," which uh, is just a great piece. And John has led the charge on the importance of sleep, circadian watch bills, circadian rhythm, all of those those things, uh, you know, particularly in the aftermath of the 2017 Navy collisions. And when it came out, there was, uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, uh, verified that sleep or sleep deprivation had a role, you know, in those uh, collisions, particularly the Fitzgerald. Um, so anyway, uh, John's great, and uh, he's going to be at SNA. And the other thing I wanted to highlight is that on the afternoon of the first day, uh, there's an award ceremony, and uh, one of the awards is given every year is the SNA Literary Awards. And the we're always asked to nominate some of our proceedings authors for those awards. And Petty Officer John Minor, who wrote Every Sailor a Damage Controlman and was the winner of the Naval Institute Enlisted Prize uh, Essay Contest in 2019. Uh, he has won the SNA uh, Literary Award and he'll be um, awarded and, and uh, feted uh, at that event at SNA next week. So, so exciting to see not just a proceedings author, but a, one of our enlisted authors. Uh, and so we're getting, as you said, Paul, more of them. Uh, you've been beating down the you know the doors and telling people, hey, proceedings is not just for officers. We're open to anyone who's interested, anyone who's passionate about the sea services. And we've seen consistently now for the last four years, the number of enlisted authors in proceedings has been steadily rising and the quality of what they submit. Uh, and if you haven't read it, for our listeners who haven't read John Miner's piece, go on to our website, uh, do a search on every sailor or damaged controlman, and, and you'll find his piece, and it's just fantastic. It is a fantastic piece, and so good to see SNA 
see, uh, you know, verifying the the value of that piece by giving him uh, their literary award. So excited about that. Well, I'll be there. I think we'll be there yep. uh, for that presentation. So yep. real excited about that. We're very much looking. And, and SNA is always a good time to catch up with your surface warfare shipmates. Um, it really is a, a cool event there in Crystal City. So if you're around and you haven't considered going there, uh, please do. You can register on site. Um, all kinds of things to see and uh, vendors showing their wares of what's happening in the next uh, number of years and um, technology updates. And as you've mentioned, Bill, there's some awards happening and other keynotes. It's really a, 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 a signature time of year and it sort of punctuates the, the winter doldrums for us around here uh, when SNA is. You know that the holidays are over and we're into the new year and we start getting serious about life again. Uh, so I, I, even as an aviator, look forward to uh, doing SNA every year. It's a good time. Yeah, and I'm going to do uh, on the 23rd, the Hampton Roads chapter of the SNAs. Uh, they have an, a monthly lunch and they do some speaking there uh so i'll look forward to that opportunity as well and, uh, i'll be doing some outreach with uh, u.s coast guard training station yorktown on the 16th giving uh, you know an awareness brief to them um but uh, a lot of good a lot of great writing but also the podcast where we've had several you know enlisted guests on the podcast and you know great intellectual back and forth uh, Master Chief of the Coast Guard, Master Chief Petty of the Navy were guests, um, and we'll look to get the Sergeant Major and Marine Corps hopefully at some point. Yeah, that would be a good yep. get for us. Uh, but you're right, Paul. It's been a great year, 2019, for the podcast as well. Um, you know, some of the highlights that come to mind, the interview with General Kelly uh, was fantastic. We talked to Admiral Stavridis. We talked to Admiral Carter, sort of his swan song, his mini oral history, as we like to call it. Um, we had some great historical podcasts. We had the Leyte Gulf podcast. We had a D-Day podcast that was really a, a lot of fun. Um, so it, it's been a great year for us and uh, we look forward to growing uh, the audience and the, uh, the who we have on the show going forward. Again, our primary utility is to go deeper with proceedings authors and we intend to con con you know continue that. We're not going to deviate from that. Um, but when we get an occasional uh, a Mullen or a Stavridis or or somebody uh, newsworthy or somebody who's a big name, we'll we'll certainly jump on that opportunity. Yeah, well, we heard last week. So uh, in our building last week was the the acting secretary of the Navy, uh, uh, Modley. And he's a fan of the Naval Institute, and he talked to Pete. Um, he hosted a meeting here in in Beach Hall. Uh, I think they're starting. The, the Navy is starting to see the Naval Institute almost as a uh, sort of a neutral party, right? A little bit of a Switzerland. It's like their Yalta. It's their Yalta. <laughs> That's another thing we should quickly mention yes. is that uh, the the year kicked off uh, very quickly with with big events that impacted the Navy and the the sea services with uh, the drone strike on Iranian uh, Quds Force Commander IRGC. Commander Qasem Soleimani in Baghdad last week by the United States, uh, followed by uh, a, a lot of rhetoric from both sides, you know, threats from both sides, a ramping up of the uh, the, the threat condition, right, in uh, in the entire Middle East and, and largely throughout the world. Uh, and, and that uh, reverberated last night with a, an attack by the Iranian missile forces uh, on U.S. air bases or U.S. forces at air bases in Iraq. And we know now, because the president spoke about an hour ago, uh, that there were no U.S. casualties from those uh, strikes. 
The president has laid down some markers uh, on Iran and on the Quds Force, the IRGC. Uh, but right now it looks like um, we're sort of holding fire, right? So there's not going to be an immediate reprisal, probably because no U.S. forces were killed in that Iranian attack yesterday. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the Iranian aim points were picked to make it look like they were doing something bold uh, and yet maybe didn't really want to kill Americans. So, so have you seen the imagery that has been going around social I, I, lately? I, I saw one just before we walked yeah. down here. I did see an image of so that, I'd of be, that air base. You being the intel officer, obviously you're very familiar with, with photo analysis of these sorts of things. Um, it, it looks like they didn't hit nothing. I mean, they hit things. Yeah. Right. Uh, I was trying to see where these hangars, where these storage facilities, where these barracks, I, I couldn't tell uh, with my first pass, but they definitely hit certain, let's call them dimpies. Yeah. So as we're talking, again, the Twitter sphere was saying, well, maybe they just did it just to show they could do it, or they did it and they intentionally just bombed desert just to not provoke. Yeah, they were building struck. Yeah, yeah. They. So I think they hit things that they intended to hit. I think the uh, American forces early warning, what I heard this morning on broadcast media was their early warning systems allowed everybody to be in bunkers when those missiles actually hit. Um, and so there were no casualties. That's the good news. But meanwhile, in terms of our focus, uh, and if you check out the fleet tracker on USNI News, you can see the disposition of forces primarily where is Truman? And it's interesting to me that Truman is in the North Arabian Sea and not in the Persian Gulf proper. Right. So and, the, and the boxer Arg yeah, also has been, on its way. been tracking, is on its yeah. way across the Med and, and headed in that direction. Right. And there so, are a number of small boys, missile shooters in the event that we had to launch TLAM or whatever. My first deployment, the idea of going into the Gulf was unheard of. It wasn't until Desert Storm 1 that we sort of kicked that door open and went through the straits, and we were regularly, every deployment thereafter, right. I was Air, in the, the Gulf in proper and CVOP area, yep. uh, yeah, one through four, and, and uh, so forth and so on. And now, because of the short-fuse response times from Iran— Bushir, Bonner, Abbas, places like that, um, we're not in the Gulf proper. So it's sort of back to 1985 to 1991 timeframe, which is interesting. And I will also point out very uh, self-promotionally that the chapter one in Punk's War is about an Iranian fighter overflying a carrier. Um, accidentally, and you remember the skipper uh, sort of screws up the intercept and so forth and so on. And that, uh, so the, and that was written in 1999. The book was published in 01, but I wrote that passage in 1999. So this issue we've been wrestling with for some years. Um, so we know that our friends and, and shipmates for in CAG-1 aboard Truman are planning in earnest You've been the carrier wing intel officer. I've been a strike lead in CAG ops. Um, Master Chief, you've served on carriers. You know what's up. Um, you know that Civic is a beehive of activity right now. Yeah, it's constant planning. It's and planning and replanning and, and briefing it and then cheap shotting each other and so forth and so on. So there were existing con ops already. Lincoln passed down the folders to Truman when they in-chopped, but those have been refined and so forth and so on. So the point for our audience, because people will say, hey, how come you guys are talking about this? Carrier presence is about deterrence. If you don't know the carrier's there, there's not a whole lot of deterrence. So we're not trying, we're not putting out lats and longs and mod locks and that sort of things. We're saying here, just like with the fleet tracker, 
hey, world, you've got a U.S. Navy. It's based forward, and it's ready to do business. So if you don't know about that, there's no deterrence factor there. So for the critics who would say, you guys are talking about it too much, I, I stand that logic on its head, A. Yep. B, we also need to appreciate, though, whether or not we actually execute these strikes, which I am very doubtful we ever would, our carrier wing and supporting arms are ready to execute T-LAM right. shooters, including submarines. DDGs, right? Yes. So they're out there. And uh, certainly the folks who listen to the Proceedings Podcast, we would assume have some savvy of the Navy and they're aware of this. But if you're a first-time listener whenever, um, just understand your Navy and Marine Corps on the ARG are ready to do what they need to do. And they're planning in earnest at this moment. Yeah, constantly. It's a constant constantly. constant plan, update, yeah. brief, plan, yeah. update, brief. So adjust, the tooth to twit tail between a, a 1.5 sortie and the 12 hours of briefing and debriefing is you know, proportionally disproportionate, you know, and, and uh, so there's a lot of paperwork and the mission isn't over until the paperwork's done, right? And then it, when you get back from mission, there's the post analysis and the FLIR tape review and all the other stuff that happens. Um, so a lot of work and it's 24-7 literally out there. There's no such thing as a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, so we're thinking about the folks aboard Truman and the strike group assets. Uh, we're thinking about the CAG-1 Girls and guys, and uh, you know, we know they're ready to go if the if the bubble goes up. That's right. Uh, another thing, just to, to harken back on, you know, there's rarely anything new under the sun, and for the Navy and the Marine Corps, there's not much new under the sun that hasn't been covered in proceedings in the past, right? So I saw a spike in traffic on our website a half hour ago uh, on an article from 1988, a proceedings article called "The Tanker War." Uh, suddenly it was, you know, getting 20, 30, you know, readers at a time. And so somebody must have grabbed that, probably put it on Facebook or tweeted about it. But, you know, if you're wondering, okay, have we done this before? Yes, we've done this before. We talked about this a little bit last summer. Uh, but it's, uh, it's always interesting to see the things that are happening in the world today and, and people, you know, we can go back in our archive back to 1874 with proceedings and find, you know, examples of- Which you can only access if you're a member. You can access all of it if you're a member yes. of the Naval Institute. That's correct. We yep. put your team and you just make decisions about what can be in front of the firewall from time to time. Uh, and we're doing this 24-7 as well. On a Saturday, you'll go, hey, let's put this in front of the firewall because it's trending or it's newsworthy. But if you're a member, you have access to all of this, yeah. this treasure trove of relevant information, as you said, Bill, from 1874 till now. Yep. Yeah, I find myself going to the archives often for for not just kind of, hey, what's going on with current events, but uh, researching prior, once again, what enlisted authors were writing 20 years ago would have been the trends. It's interesting to see there, you know, there's some themes that recur over decades. No, you, you type know? in Iran into the search box and you'd be amazed what you get, you know. Yep. Um, or tanker war or Gulf uh, or Straits of Hormuz. Just type those search terms in there and, and you'll find all kinds of stuff going back way, way far. But you'll realize that this applied history is relevant. Yep. Again, this is what the Naval Institute does that's uh, differentiated from any other media outlet that you could uh, go to. Yep. I guarantee if someone goes back and reads those articles, immediately a seed will be planted of a new article that's relevant that they can take that concept, refer to it, and, and come up with something new. 
Cool. Uh, one other thing that's coming up uh, that's not a Naval Institute event, but is one that we we have worked with the, the Naval History and Heritage Command, uh, and they are hosting at the Navy Museum on the Washington Navy Yard on 23 January, starting at 10 a.m., an event to com- commemorate the 60th anniversary of the Bathyscaphe Trieste, the U.S. Navy uh, deep submersible vessel. It was called a Bathyscaphe. Uh, that that Lieutenant then Lieutenant Don Walsh uh, and a, uh, a civilian Jacques Picard uh, went to the bottom of the World Ocean, the bottom of the Marianas Trench. So this was January 1960 in this very interesting looking you know piece of gear, very high tech at that time. These two gentlemen strapped them into, themselves into this uh, pressure sphere that went down over five miles uh, to the bottom of the ocean. And Don Walsh is a Naval Academy class of 54. He's written for proceedings for decades. Uh, he was, it has been and continues to be uh, now. He shares it with uh, Lawson Brigham, but the, uh, the author of our Oceans column. Uh, so that's a, a column in proceedings that runs every other month. Uh, Don is just a, an amazing human being, a PhD in uh, oceanography, one of the members of the um, an elite organization called the Ocean Elders. Uh, he's a, uh, a, a lecturer, guest lecturer on cruise ships and everything. 88 years old, lives out in Oregon. He was on the podcast about a year and a half ago. Uh, so he's coming back to the Washington Navy Yard on the 23rd of January to talk about that historic mission to take the Trieste to the bottom of the world ocean. Uh, and he's an amazing human being. If you are in the D.C. area or will be in the D.C. area, I, I highly recommend that you come to the Washington Navy Yard, to the Navy Museum. Uh, it's open to the public. It's a free event. Uh, it, I've uh, put it out on our Facebook page, our link, or, sorry, our Instagram, LinkedIn page, and our Twitter page. So there's information out there. They're also posting the information on the NHHC website. Uh, it, it should be a really cool event. The other thing is we've got uh, two Proceedings authors, Norman Polmar, who wrote a piece in the January issue of Proceedings, and also Jim Cayella, who wrote a piece in Naval History Magazine, the January issue of Naval History Magazine, with a really amazing uh, graphic of the Trieste. Uh, so both of those articles are on our website, Naval History or Proceedings. You can find those, and Jim and Norman Polmar will be at the event at the Navy Museum uh, on the 23rd of January. So if you're in D.C. and you can you know, free yourself up from whatever else is on your schedule, get to the Navy Museum. You'll want to be there because, uh, in my view, um, Don Walsh is like the epitome of an incredible naval professional, a guy who was a submarine officer who had the chance to uh, raise his hand and say, yeah, sure, I'll I'll volunteer to be part of that program. And then he finds himself as a lieutenant, one of the first two human beings to go to the deepest point on the ocean. And that, that feat was not... Uh, replicated by a human being until almost like I think it was 58 or 59 years later. So mm. just a year ago or so, uh, another expedition has done that. And and Don was invited out to the mothership and was on board when a civilian uh, oceanographic uh, research vessel went to the bottom of the Marianas Trench as well. Uh, so anyway, he'll he'll be at the Navy Yard. Super excited. We'll, we'll probably do an episode of the podcast uh, just after that event at the Navy Yard invite, as you've already said, the listeners to check out that episode of the podcast if they can't make it to the Navy Yard on the 23rd. And if you can, please, uh, please come out and, and see him in person. He's an amazing human being. As you said, he's in the same category as uh, Alan Shepard, Neil Armstrong kind of guy, except he went the opposite direction. You know, we're saying uh, 
it's what six miles deep <laughs> a little bit below crushed depth. you know huh? just yeah <laughs> and remember the the his porthole cracked on the way down and he right. kept going he told us that story on yeah. the podcast it's on, that's what i'm yeah. saying it, it, and, and at like twenty seven thousand I mean, feet if your porthole starts cracking i'm not thinking they, i'm thinking that's mission abort right, right? and yeah. he that's not the way he rolls right they, just they, amazing they, they, sort of, they sort of stopped the descent uh saw that no water was coming in and realized well okay let's keep going that's and, nuts. and they kept going that's a all, rare all breed way, all the way to the bottom rare breed just amazing so yeah um, Paul, let's talk a little bit about your article in the December issue uh, of Proceedings about reorienting the chief's mess for the high-end fight. So I'm curious, the kind, what kind of feedback have you been getting from uh, the chief's mess uh, since then? So I, when the article first came out, um, you know, you watch, you know, I tell people when you write, you know, the kind of the, oh, moment is going to be, you know, when it posts, it goes live, and then here comes kind of the reality of it all. Um Overall, it was, uh, I mean, fairly, you know, a lot of people that are like, yes, we've been seeing this, we've been saying that. Um, some people could, you know, you get a one-off, you know, we had one that kind of came back. Uh, there was a significant response uh, on the Facebook post. But all in all, you know, I, I judge the feedback based on my target audience. So my target audience for that article wasn't necessarily, uh, it actually was several audiences, right? So this article, you know, and I, I'll, I'll start it out with, this article, you know, was written while I was still on active duty, right? And I had submitted this one in the article on, you know, how to better use the Super Chiefs um, for the general essay prize contest. So by the time I got through that vetting process and then we staged it out for the articles to come out, this article is actually like over a year, you know, from when I wrote it and was on active duty. It's actually part two to an article I wrote um, that I won, you know, I think it was back in 16 or 15 on the, um, general prize contest, third place on my, my first sense of like, Hey, you know, we're talking about, um, repositioning and getting the Navy ready for the high end fight. I had been at the Naval safety center. Um, I was getting around the fleet a lot and I was getting a lot of feedback and hearing a lot from chief petty officers about things that were on their mind that was getting in the way of their effectiveness, distracting them, their focus, and then things I had seen over time. So wrote that first article and it coincided with me getting selected to be the fleet mass chief at fleet forces. And now I'm in a position to actually, okay, I guess I better do something about this. Right. So, um, conversation with Avril Davidson and then the other fleet mass chiefs and Mick Pond at the time, we started to kind of put some work into shaping some of the processes, sh uh, shaping some of the influencers on the Navy wide cheese mess, um, to ensure that they were not just resourced, but, educated and focused on the right thing so overall i think this article resonates with them um, because like i said i advocate as much as some may interpret i'm challenging them i'm also advocating for them at the same time so what were some of the key things that you recommended in uh, in your article yep so um so you look at you know you know, I had to step out of, and look at the cheese messes from the outside, right? So, I, you know, that's the perspective. I'm looking at the cheese mess at large as a part of a broader system. And as you know, the, you know, the, the cheese mess have a tremendous amount of authority. They have a heritage. They have a legacy. Uh, they've been empowered to do things. And there's lots of mantras out there that represent that, right? Ask the chief, results, not excuses, backbone of the Navy. And those are great. And when you read those on a coffee mug or a t-shirt, those are great. But you read what's in the cheese creed, and that's another one of our big value and belief systems. If you really read what you got to do to execute those things, that's not easy to do, right? It's easy to put on a t-shirt, not so much to do day to day. 
But um, I was in a position to see, you know, not just Naval Safety Center, you know, assessment teams going out and, and, and getting feedback on mishaps and contributing factors to that. But uh, the feedback I was getting was, you know, like you're, you're sitting in on insert briefs and you're seeing a lot of lack of procedural compliance, lack of maintenance knowledge, right? Some key things that are there about, okay, hold on. These are things that traditionally the cheese mess is influencing and shaping, right? So if those things aren't happening, um, I'm going to look at that group first and go, okay, why isn't that happening, right? Um, I always don't think you've got a group of people that just don't care, right? These are highly motivated people. They are focused. And when you get them going where they need to go, they're going to deliver results as they say, but they respond to what the organization tells them to do. So, you know, if I go back, you know, I, I look at several things. So one of the key things that shapes a chief petty officer is, um, basically their competence, right? What they know about the Navy, about their rating, about their warfare community, I, I kind of, you know, remember being a chief or senior chief and starting to see us one big thing, what I call eroding out the advancement system. So the Navy I grew up in, you guys probably remember too, right? We had these military requirements manuals. We had to do them. We had to take those courses. You did the course first, you turned it into your educational services officer, they graded it. And then once you pass that, then you took a test, right? And that test was graded and and if you didn't pass that test, you couldn't take your rating exam, right? So, so that requirement goes away. And then we, w- we got to the point to where- When did that requirement go away? In the early 2000s, right? So we're talking, you know, and, it, and for whatever reason, you know, maybe it's a, hey, we don't need to do this. Maybe it's a resourcing thing. Maybe it's a, we view it as an administrative distraction or something, but that goes away. Um, and then we start messing around with- Hey, we're going to combine the military requirements exam into the rating exam, right? Um, so you lessen that content. And then you see that, hey, we're not going to verify completion of rating manuals and military requirements manuals anymore, right? Um, we're just going to give you a bibliography and over to you to study for your exam, right? So that kind of thing goes away. And those things are important, right? Because those processes incentivize self-study, right? And regardless of what you think, I could, you know, and we reach, you know, and I'll talk about that. We reintroduce some of that testing now. But, and I got it, no matter what testing you do, there's always going to be some kind of workarounds. But I remember sitting down and studying those military requirements manuals about, you know, power projection and strategic deterrence and first aid and uniforms and all those things. Um, Cause I wanted to pass that military requirements exam so I could take my rating exam so I could get advanced and get paid more. So that advancement system is a key way of incentivizing self-study um, and there's been some people that are like, Hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't test anymore. Um, I absolutely don't agree with that. Um, I think you have to test right anywhere, even in the civilian sector where you have technical competence and that kind of workforce, you validate it with some kind of testing, right? If I'm going to be certified as a journeyman electrician, they don't just go, Oh, we trust you, right? They, you log hours, they're documented, you demonstrate, um, proficiency, what we used to call PARs, right? So those went away as well back in the day in the 2000s. And then you take some kind of test that validates, you know, your knowledge to kind of get you to the dance and then you build proficiency. So I talk about that in both articles about, hey, we need to rebuild this enlisted advancement system and make sure it's still rigorous. Um, Obviously, it still needs, always needs change, right? So yes, those advancement exams, they can't just be superfluous stuff, right? They got to be valid. They got to be make sure they reflect the systems and the things that are out there. And, and very focused on technical competency. Yes. And, and that's that's a key part of this article, yep. right? Is the focus on technical Absolute. competency. Yep. And, and when I look at, 
you know, chief's competence. It's not just about technical and the rating, right? They got to know about the Navy and policies. And that's why that, that professional military education course and the testing that just came back, um, that's the intent of that. Now, how rigorous that is and making sure that people actually study and learn about, you know, the, the, you know, the support, the military knowledge is important too. But another piece of the being a good chief petty officer is your life experience, right? Um, and we don't measure that. We don't validate it. But when you ask, say, ask the chief, there's an experience that, hey, I've been on deployment. I've been through the reps and sets. Hey, maybe I've been through a divorce or a tough situation. Maybe I've struggled with alcohol, right? That There's lessons there that you can help uh, that make you, uh, I think, even a stronger chief petty officer. So that was one of the lines, kind of the pressures that I wrote about here that, hey, always got to be mindful of that advancement system. Um, and one thing I talk about here is who is making the decision to adjust these advancement processes, right? So is it an OPNAV based, um, you know, chief of Navy personnel and his team are all like, Hey, this is kind of what we need to do based on some objective they're out, but it's misaligned with what the fleet needs, right? So perhaps OPNAV is trying to shape it based on some fleet feedback or, Hey, we want to adjust to, you know, how the new generation learns, uh, so from this perspective, it looks good to cut this, this, or this, or maybe we need to cut budget, you know, in an area. Meanwhile, the fleet sees it differently. So the fleet perspective is, no, this is important for us to protect. So I'll, I write in there about just making sure that when these decisions are made, that there are fleet stakeholders at the table that can pr- uh, bring those uh, concerns forward. So where does the high-end chief's mess differ from the war between the wars or what would the other chiefs, yep. what would the, the asymmetric chiefs yep. mess? So, uh, so when I, I would go out and deliver, and I, I got this, frankly, when I was with Admiral Davidson, the first time I heard him talk about that, right, is you kind of get into, I won't say we're ever complacent, but you get used to sending a carrier strike group to the So we'll just East. remind the audience that Admiral Davidson on your watch was, was Fleet Forces yeah, Command. He was Commander He's now Indo-PACOM. Yes. Yep. Classmate of mine, which Absolutely. I say every time we talk about Admiral yep. Davidson. But, and he uh, would talk about the shift. You know, we were going through that shift from a constabulary Navy with a heavy presence, you know, just, I mean, you're really doing reps and sets, flying, you know, known routes, uh, doing combat air patrol. Um, no one's really challenging you heavily over there. Um, reps and sets, that's a very CNO Richardson term. Oh, yeah? Yeah. But you also have to say major muscle movements as well. <laughs> <laughs> that for the for gym rats like me, right? Kind of reps and sets and muscle movements. Um, but it's very in vogue in 2018. Yeah, yeah. So where it comes down to, um, so a part of that before you get to high end, right? So it gets back to technical competence. So another thing that happened though was there's been some level of outsourcing of traditional kind of what you would call technical authorities, right? Um, there's decisions and there's um, repairs that chiefs and sailors would initiate um, in the past without question, right? But we've brought a lot of contractor kind of base maintenance in. We install systems sometimes without any of the back training, right, that kind of fills it. And then you're in a position where here I am for deployed and, you know, I got to rely on a contractor to fly out. And that's great if you're in the Persian Gulf and there's not, you know, not a lot going on there. But when you get to a high end and you're in a comms denied environment and stuff starts coming at you and you start sinking a part of the fleet, I don't think contractors are going to f- come out there to help, right? So... That's that piece of, no, you got to be able to rely and, and fix stuff yourself. Um, and you could argue back and say, hey, you start taking a hit from some of these missiles on kind of your modern platform. There's not going to be a lot of, you know, high end technical fixes that you're going to do at all. But you got to start thinking creatively and differently about, okay, what does that look like, right? So if you do take those hits, do you understand how it impacts your systems, your ships? And can you do that kind of uh, Neptune's Inferno 
damage control, right? And you read those stories in Neptune's Inferno, what, what some of those chiefs did and some of those officers did. I mean, they're banditing the ship together basically to keep it kind of surviving, right? It might not be able to fight back, but you're at least trying to keep it afloat and get it out of the way. So that's the big difference I see when it comes down to technical focus and authority. But it's also, you know, like I talk in here about is there's a confidence to this too, right? So there's ability to lead tough um, and demand things uh, out of your sailors um, that those situations are going to dictate. So how are you feeling? Because you spend a lot of time at Senior Enlisted Academy, other centers of excellence. You're down in, in Norfolk talking to fleet concentration area personnel. How are you feeling about the culture currently? Yep. Um, so like I said, I think that, so when I would go out and they, the chief's mess will resonate well to this, you know, they want to fight. I mean, they want to be prepared to fight and they are resonate with war fighting talk. Um, they will tell you they're not resource though, right? So that's another piece of this, right? You gotta, I can't go out and tell chiefs, um, to manage maintenance, right? Cause this is a management problem too, right? You plan, you organize, you direct and control maintenance. Um, but to do that, you got to have stuff, right? You got to be resourced with people, right? To do it, you got to have materials. And we know that the fleet has struggled with manning and it still is not manned to where it needs to be. And even John Cordell, like you mentioned, he's written extensively about that too. And there's a lot of people still advocating to get the manning right in the fleet that we need. Who's it we talked to on the podcast? We had two folks on about a year ago talking about maintenance readiness yeah so that was uh cmc scott kelly right and work that they're doing at the region maintenance centers uh and john cordell was also on that yeah with us, so right? i entreat the audience to listen to that episode again because there to your point there was some really unflinching scene setter talk about yep. where we are currently with our maintenance posture and the culture yep what, what you just said reminded me of that conversation and how blunt it was yeah. uh, and and but also you know it was contextualized correctly but it was you know i, I thought those guys did a great job of, of saying what was really going on yep. and i don't think the landscape has changed much since that podcast right um so when i look at the culture right you look at okay um culture is the collective behaviors and the things you do and you say but i always before i start talking about culture i go what is the value and belief systems that are out there driving those behaviors right what are the that's why I look at systems and processes. So, you know, you can have a MCPON comes in and start saying things, right? That will shape the value and belief system, the chief's mess and get them a certain way. If, if you shape that advancement system a certain, certain way, they'll respond to that. So I think they, they're still aligned to a value of, hey, um, we're the chief's mess, we get it done, right? But same time, I've seen some different values that are in there, right? So, and I'm, I'm not trying to say this is old school Navy, new school Navy, but I've seen a focus more in CPO pride and rate pride, right? And less on per se rating pride, right? And I think that reflects some of this folk, you know, this move away from competence in a way. I don't, I can't prove that with science, but, um, when I grew up as a young chief in the chief's mess, there wasn't a lot of, hey, let's go run around the base. Let's not, you know, there weren't CPO pride shirts. There wasn't a lot of coinage, you know, these kind of symbols of rate community and rate pride, right? And, and it's great to be proud to be a chief petty like officer. chief marketing. Yes. Right there's sort but of it's marketing. Not, yeah. That's not the end all be all, right? That's yeah. not the end state is to have a yeah. good coin or a cool t-shirt, right? right? Um, I think I would much rather have, you know, you having pride in rating and your commands readiness than as kind of this broader uh, pride in this kind of fraternity sorority group I'm in, right? It has a time and a place. 
it's important, right? That network serves a crucial function, right? Um, and it actually helps you manage effectively, right? So when I run into knowledge or resource constraints or I need help, man, you can't tell me there's not more knowledge about the Navy or how to get things done than the cheese mess. But the cheese mess isn't the end all be all. You do much more. You should do much more work day to day as a chief petty officer within your rating than you should ever do as a collective cheese mess, if that makes sense. And I think sometimes we got to be careful that we don't start twisting that narrative to like, well, it's all about being in the cheese mess. No, you happen to be a rating, you know, you're, you're a rated mass chief who happens to be a member of the cheese mess, but your job is to make sure the systems and the sailors that, you know, fall within your rating and your divisional or departmental structure are ready and prepared for that high-end combat, right? That's what it's about every day. And then you lean on the cheese mess when you need to, when you can't get it done day to day. So that's one thing I, you know, I'm concerned about from time to time. And I talk about that, right? Um, I'll come at you. I'll support you when you tell me, Hey, certifications are too high, right? And kind of, there's a lot of redundancies and, you know, safety center comes out and tells me, um, I got to do this. And then ATG comes out and tells me something different, right? That, that narrative's still out there with the certification process. And I, I, Hey, all day I'll advocate to, to get that right. Um, you'll tell me you have too many administrative distractions, right? Okay. I'm with you. I want to reduce that pressure or help you reduce that. But then I come to your command and I see, fundraisers right going on and and these fundraisers are primarily being you know there's enlisted sailors there that's it and it's like so on one hand you're telling me you don't have the time you know and the resources to do this but you can't flip it the other way and go but i can do it on these things as well right so i'm saying not i'm not saying don't do those things but be mindful of how that's perceived and kind of do you really have the time to do those things gotcha yeah those are great points um so as part of the Naval Institute Press organization, I mentioned at the start of the podcast that you have a big role as a, uh, a professional books author, and you've written the, the Chief's Petty Officer's Guide, uh, which is new, which is a, a new title for the Naval Institute just last year. How is that being received by the Chief's Mess, and how does it uh, help address some of these things that, that you're talking about? Yep. Um, so I've gotten favorable feedback on it. I think we're still building awareness, believe it or not, that you know it's even out there, but not just with this, with the Naval Institute Press in general uh, and the professional series of books that we write. Um, so it's been well-received. When I come out, I'll, you know, I'll write, but I'll also have a seminar that goes with it, right? So it allows, it gives me another opportunity to talk and speak to that, right? So the Chief Petty Officer's Guide was an opportunity to take, you know, I built a chapter in there about management skills, right? Technical management skill, because once again, we had moved off of that. And I've written an article about that, right? Um, probably a couple of years ago about, hey, we talk about leadership a lot, but we don't throw the word management around, right? And management has hard skills you can learn, right? I can make you a better planner. I can give you tools to plan better, Um I can help you be more organized, right? Hey, yeah, that watch bill you're writing, that's an organizing tool, an organizing function of management, right? I can help you direct maintenance and do the directing function of management better. Um, but once again, we all talk about lead, deck plate leadership, deck plate leadership. Okay, got it. But you know, let's get back to some management fundamentals and management efficiency as well, right? And this gets into competence, right? So if your ship's going into, you know, availability, you know, and you're putting that work package together, right? Your ability to help plan and identify is crucial, right? How you manage a CSMP is important. So those are all management functions. So um, my personal observations with an erosion of management skill prompted me to write, you know, we used to have a book called Management Fundamentals for Senior and Mass Chief Petty Officers. I remember doing that as a chief petty officer, doing that guide, right? Um, I'm like, 
that still resonates with me. So I took that kind of core content and built that chapter up, right? So that was an, another effort for me to kind of do that. And then the other thing the chief guide allowed me to do was, you know, like I, I say it a lot, right? It's easy to put on a coffee mug or a t-shirt, but it's harder to execute day to day. So it was taking some of these mantras, you know, when we say ask the chief, you know, here's what it takes, right? You got to have a depth of competence, right? And you got to invest in self-study and you don't just make chief petty officer and you know it all, right? That uh, the knowledge you have to learn to be a good senior chief grows, the knowledge you got to learn to be a good mass chief grows, to be an effective command mass chief, right? You got to learn the things you knew as a chief petty officer, there is no way you will survive. You know what I mean? Or uh, you could survive, right? You'll, you'll, but you will add no value and you won't be effective as you could be as a command mass chief or a rating mass chief at the CAG level, you know, you know, helping manage broader management objectives if you still operate and think the way you did as a chief petty officer. So, um, the Coast Guard version of the Chief Petty Officer Guide is coming out, right? Um, that one even got better than the Navy version, right? So I was able to put some more thought and, and kind of build that up a little bit more. And then we've got the Petty Officer Guides coming out. So in the spring, the Navy's Petty Officer Guide came out. And I just took core content and, and you know, once again, management and leadership models of power bases, influence tactics, and solid management skills, put that into the Petty Officer's Guide, because I'm like, no, if you are learning this as a chief petty officer, it's it's kind of too late. Now, these guides are designed to complement the leadership and management development you get, you know, not just through your three-day course that the Navy offers, but your day-to-day experiences and the mentorship and the coaching you're getting in the fleet. These guides are supposed to be used as a tool to help stimulate that and make that better. So overall, favorable reception once people see them. The seminar gets great feedback, uh, and it's a body of knowledge that's relevant and I think will make them better um, leaders and managers. So we've talked a little bit about it, and this week, yesterday, and and tomorrow, uh, the Naval Institute Senior Leadership is doing this uh, strategic planning and our our key strategy implementation plan for the next several years of our strategic plan. And one of the things we were talking about yesterday was the Naval Institute Press, the professional books the refresh rate of the professional books. So our CEO, Pete Daly, has pushed on you and Tom Cutler and, and uh, the, the press as a, as a whole to upgrade the refresh rate, and, and you guys have, which has been a lot of work, uh, to, to make sure that all of our, you know, the division officer's guide, the watch officer's yep. guide, the chief petty officer's guide, all those books uh, are refreshed at least every five years, if not sooner. Uh, but these are. Th- this is a, a key part of the mission work that the Naval Institute does, right? It is advancing the naval professional and advancing uh, naval professionals in their careers. And and these, uh, uh, all of those professional books that the Naval Institute Press publishes every year are, are a key aspect of that. Yep. And uh, uh, one of the things we talked about is um, with some of these books, how do we? have better touch points with the, the brigade of midshipmen, for example, right? Which, you know, we're right here at the Naval Academy. And at what point do we bring them in for a discussion with Tom Cutler for the division officer's guide, for example, right? And so uh, you're about to be a division officer. You're about to graduate and be a commission officer and go out, whether it's to a submarine or a ship or a squadron or whatever. And so we're, we're thinking about over the next couple of years, increasing the opportunity for the Naval Institute Press to have much closer touch points with the users of those professional books. And that's a key part of, of you know, implementing our strategic plan over the next couple of years to, to get better at advancing the profession and the professionals. And the existence of the conference center will make that more doable. But you're right, Bill, with 
Pete's leadership and Paul's guidance, we're not standing on ceremony with the reference book suite. We want it, as you were pointing out with the managerial chapter, we want it to be used. We don't just want it to be on your bookshelf collecting dust. No. And I think it's easy on the reference side because it in our portfolio is it can be viewed as not sexy, but it is our core competency. And you've brought the sexy back by doing tours with it and taking it to centers of excellence and, and concentration areas and getting feedback and, yep. and really breathing life into it in a way that uh, maybe we got away from that, but uh, certainly we are, we're back. Yeah. And it's uh and that's a key part of this, right? So, you know, our naval, you know, our fleet is the customer, right? And so it's their book. I'm not just going to write stuff that's, you know, I think, right. So it's like, no, there's a lot of fleet soliciting, you know, um, when we wrote Petty Officers Guy, we had a red yeah, team. Yeah, you're not Tony Robbins. No. Right? You know, we you're had a red team. to do motivational seminars or something. No. For Petty Officer Guy, brought in uh, Wine One Dan Richards, right? A younger first-class Petty Officer because it was important to be able to connect with and understand the mindset. You know, it's been a while since I was a first-class. Um, I've got that, like I said, we can talk power bases, influence tactics, and that applies. I can take that all the way from the four-star level down to E4. But there's ways they think and you talk to them. So it was important to bring on a younger co-author. That's one thing we've done is, uh, you know, it's kind of like the rule of twos with the Sith, right? You know, let's try to get a, you know, a master and an apprentice that can keep these things relevant and refresh. But, um, did you just do a Star Wars thing? Yes. Okay. Did you see it? No. Okay. So I saw, so uh, Baby Yoda, is that the Baby Yoda? No. (laughs) So Dan and I, uh, Dan and I uh, did a lot of work with, we had about eight second class, you know, third, second class petty officers on our red team that as we would develop content, we would put it by him and say, does this hit mark? You know, what else do you want to hear? What do you not want to hear? Um, when we're getting ready to, we just discussed today, hey, Blue Jacket Manual 26 is coming up. Um, I see a vision for that, you know, to kind of refresh that and make that, uh, to, you know, the modern version of that. But once again, I will invest with, you know, I'll reach out to my contacts at Recruit Training Command in the fleet through Netsy and go, okay, I want to make sure this thing is used, right? It's cool, right? Those Blue Jackets, these, you know, Blue Jackets manuals have a legacy since 1902 and there's a collector value to them, but there's also a practical use. And I want to see the pages worn and I want to see them tabbed and I want to see yellow stickies all over them uh, with any of these books. So we'll, we'll continue to do that. Um, and uh, it's an exciting part. Uh, it's huge of what I do and I enjoy doing it. Fantastic. Very cool. Hey, you mentioned the Coast Guard Chief Petty Officer's Guide. Who's your co-author for that one? Yep. So that's uh, BMC Phil Knoll. So one, he uh, he was a winner of a essay contest and he's written to, he has his own podcast, right? It's the, uh, they didn't, or they, they went out podcast. It's uh, Coast Guard stories about, you know, um, Coast Guardsmen that went out and did the mission and not necessarily, either did acts of bravery and lived or they didn't. So it's, he's, he's kind of in that space, but um, he was able to take the manuscripts for Navy Petty Officer Guide. I approached him with the Chief's Guide and said, "Hey, do you see you know value in this?" And he's like, "I went down to Yorktown, visit him. He had it all tabbed out." And he's like, "Absolutely." And I said, "Okay, good. You want to be the co-author?" So without hesitation, he came on, um, and awesome. he was able to turn two manuscripts around and help me turn those into uh, you know Coast Guard speak um, pretty quickly. So we're excited about those coming out. I think. CPO guide comes out in the fall, uh, and that's perfect because this is the hundredth year of the U.S. Coast Guard Chief Petty Officer, so that corresponds, and that's a great release date. And then uh, next year, um, we'll uh, I think in spring we're going to come out with the Petty Officer Guide. 
That's fantastic. All right. Well, we are out of time for this first episode of 2020, the Proceedings Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, next week, we'll have a couple episodes from uh, Surface Navy Association National Symposium over in Crystal City. Uh, Later this month, we're going to have Naval Institute Press authors who've written the book about Chinese communist espionage. That'll be later in the month. Uh, And uh, we wanted to give a advance notice for all of our listeners, particularly in the San Diego area. Uh, but upcoming in a little less than two months now is West 2020. So the big, the big annual symposium that the Naval Institute and FC are run, uh, together out at the San Diego Convention Center. The dates for this year are two and three March. It's a Monday, Tuesday. Uh, and we've got invitations out to the Secretary of Defense. We've got, uh, Secretary Modley's going to be there. The Sea Service Chiefs, the Commandant of the Coast Guard, Marine Corps, and, uh, and CNO Gilday. It's going to be a, a, a great event as it always is. Put that on your calendar if you're not already aware of it, but you can go to the Naval Institute website and you can find all the details about West 2020. Sign up and, uh, and plan to be there. We'll and see you there. For members who look forward to the ultimate Skybox event, the member event, that's going to be the evening of the third. So mark your calendar that's for right, that Tuesday one. the third. And yep. that's that is a fantastic event. Yep. Something always, you, you, you want to be an Able awesome. Institute member to go to that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. That's where the uh, elite meet. All right. So uh, victory begins at the Naval Institute in 2020. We will catch you next week at SNA.